In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives one of his most famous sermons. You've probably heard of it before. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in it is some of Jesus' best-known teachings. Now, prior to this, it's early on in his ministry. He's been preaching and teaching in Galilee, and now there's multitudes that are beginning to follow him. So when Jesus looks up and sees these crowds gathering all around him, he goes up to a mountain, takes his disciples with him, and he begins to teach them from there. It's within this sermon that Jesus gives both a challenge and a promise in one powerful phrase. I want to read it to you. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, where he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now think just a minute about the audacity of that statement. In a world that's so often filled with conflict, filled with strife, filled with hatred, Jesus sends us out as peacemakers. Now he doesn't go into all the details about what that looks like and how we should do that, but he does tell us what will happen when we begin to live this way. He says that this is the place where you discover who you really are. This is the place where you discover your part in the family of God. So it's with a humble heart that I want to speak to you today from this subject as we follow what Jesus laid out with a pattern for peace. When I think about the people who have embodied this ideal of a peacemaker, one of the people who come to my mind is the late Martin Luther King Jr. Now most of you probably know Dr. King as the most visible spokesperson of the civil rights movement, but he was also a Baptist minister whose Christian beliefs stirred him to speak up for the disadvantaged, the oppressed, and other victims of injustice. I've been so inspired as I've studied Martin Luther King Jr.'s example. He didn't just hold up a standard, he lived out a standard. And even though his words were strong, they were always marked by peace. So in our message today, I wanted to give you a glimpse into some of the practical ways that he lived this out, not just by looking at scripture, but also by looking at his life. against uh, the injustices which we have experienced on 
the buses for a number of years. We uh, feel that we are right, we have a legitimate uh, gripe, a legitimate protest, and we feel also that one of the great glories of American democracy is that we have the right to protest for rights. We will do it in an orderly fashion. This is a non-violent protest. We are depending on moral and spiritual forces using the method of passive resistance. Have you ever had such a strong disagreement with someone that it caused a rift in your relationship? I know I have. In fact, I'm sure all of us have suffered the fallout from a misunderstanding, a wrong perception, and differing viewpoints that we wish we could have avoided. And it's not just with the people who see the world differently than us. Sometimes it's within our own families and the people that we're the closest to that we end up being hurt by and hurting ourselves. But when we look at scripture, what we discover is that we're not alone in this. There was this one time Paul and his longtime ministry friend and partner, Barnabas, had such a strong disagreement that they actually parted ways. You can find the story for yourself in Acts chapter 15. Paul wanted to go back and visit the believers in all the towns where they had been preaching the gospel to see how they were doing. Barnabas also wanted to go, but he wanted to take Mark along with them. Now this whole disruption started because Mark had deserted them earlier in their work. So now Paul doesn't want to bring him along again to have it happen this time. It's funny to me to think that a guy who had been forgiven of so much in his past, Paul, was now holding the past actions of someone else against him, that's Mark. So scripture says, they had such a strong disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. How could this happen? I mean, Paul and Barnabas were not new believers. Both of these guys had walked with God for years. They were teammates. These guys had served God together. They had labored together. They had suffered together. They were both fully committed to doing the will of God. No matter what the cost, they had risked their lives for the sake of Christ, and yet they clashed. These two men who shared the same passion and the same zeal to help people, they had the same theology but they disagreed over a practical matter of ministry. You know, the truth is, you and I don't have to serve God very long to discover that serving God doesn't prevent you from clashing with someone whose personality is different than yours. Somebody who maybe just has a different opinion. What's ironic about this encounter though, is that Paul is the guy who wrote, if it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This is the same guy who began all of his letters to all of the churches that he planted with this phrase, grace and peace to you. And yet, it's the same guy who has this disagreement. What I wanna show you is that living at peace is not the same thing as never having a disagreement. In fact, I think we often misunderstand just what Jesus was saying when he sent us out as peacemakers. We aren't going to have peace on earth until we recognize this basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality.
let me say secondly, that if we're to have peace in the world, men and nations must embrace the nonviolent affirmation that ends and means must cohere. One of the great philosophical debates of history has been over the whole question of means and ends. And there have always been those who argued that the end justifies the means, that the means really aren't important. The important thing is to get to the end you seek. So if you are seeking to develop a just society, the important thing is to get there, and the means uh, really aren't important. Any means that will get you there. They may, may be violent, they may be untruthful means, they may even be unjust means to get to a just end. There have been those who have argued this throughout history. We will never have peace in the world. Men everywhere recognize that ends are not cut off from means because the means represent the ideal in the making and the end in process. And ultimately, you can't reach good ends through evil means because the means represent the seed the end represents the tree. Peacemakers is a significant word in scripture. In fact, it might surprise you to know that the only time the word is ever used is when Jesus mentions it here in the Beatitudes. It's a word bursting with energy. It mandates action and initiative. Notice that Jesus didn't say, blessed are the peace wishers or peace hopers. He didn't say peace dreamers or peace talkers. You see, peace must be made. Peace never happens by chance. A peacemaker is never passive. They always take initiative. They are up and doing. Now, it might be beneficial to explain to you what peacemaking is not. Peacemaking is not the absence of conflict. Peace in the Bible is never to be confused with pacifism or just the avoidance of strife, the avoidance of conflict. We're never instructed to run from conflict or put our head in the sand hoping that a conflict is going to end. No, anytime we do that, it only delays the inevitable. It's important to remember that peace in the Bible, the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about here, is always based on justice and righteousness. For those who say to me, stick to civil rights, I have another answer. That is that I've fought too long and too hard now against segregated public accommodations to end up segregating my moral concerns. I'm not going to do that. Others can do what they want to do. That's their business. Other civil rights leaders, for various reasons, 
refuse or can't take a stand or have to go along with the administration, that's their business. But I'm afraid of that. That I know that justice is indivisible. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. It's amazing to me how much of the life of Jesus was saturated with his mission to bring the peace of God into every situation. You see, Jesus came to establish peace. His message explained peace. His death purchased peace. And his resurrection enabled peace. His name is actually called the Prince of Peace. I could go on and on about how the angels, when they announced his birth, they did it with a proclamation of peace on earth. His most persistent word of absolution to sinners was go in peace. And just before he was crucified, in his final words to his disciples, he told them, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And then when he returned, you know what his first words were? Peace be unto you. My point is, he paid an enormous price for us to experience peace. In fact, the closest picture we have to what Jesus talked about in the Beatitudes when he said, blessed are the peacemakers, is mentioned by the Apostle Paul when he describes what God has done for us through Christ. This is what he said, that he has reconciled us to himself by making peace through his blood on the cross. See, Jesus saw the gravity of our problem and he refused to sweep it under the rug or stick his head in the sand. Only a drastic solution would suffice. So he made peace by shedding his blood on the cross. And in his action, he shows us the supreme pattern in bringing peace, whether it's in our hearts, in our relationships, in our church, in our city, in our nation, or in our world, sacrifice. We will not hate you, and yet we cannot in our good conscience obey your evil laws. Do to us what you will. Threaten our children and we will still love you. Come into our homes at the midnight hours of life and take us out on some desolate highway and beat us and leave us there and we will still love you. Run all around the country and send your literature and say that we aren't worthy of integration, that we are too immoral, that we are too low, that we are too degraded, yet we will still love you. Bomb our homes and go by our churches early in the morning and bomb them if you please. And we will still love you. But we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. In winning the victory, we will not only win our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we will win you in the process. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be 
the children of your Father, which is in heaven. Probably no admonition of Jesus has been more difficult to follow than the command to love your enemies. So how can we do this? Because division and strife happen whenever we find ourselves on opposite sides of an issue. Just like with Barnabas and Paul, when they disagreed on what was the right course of action concerning one of the people in their care, we can often become divided on issues ranging from the simple to the severe. Maybe it's over a political issue. Maybe it's over a theological issue. Maybe it's a moral issue. Maybe it's the fact that you lean a little more towards grace, or maybe you lean a little more towards truth. The opportunities abound for us to become divided in where we stand. Though we're not always going to agree, Jesus gives us a pattern for how we can all respond. In John chapter 8, there's a great example of how Jesus responded in a tough situation. Early one morning, Jesus came from the Mount of Olives just east of Jerusalem. He went into the temple courts where he began to teach the people who had gathered. But suddenly, while he was teaching, there was a rude interruption. The scribes and the Pharisees broke into the assembly, bringing with them a captive woman who had just been caught in the middle of the act of adultery. They dragged her right into the midst of this group. And one thing you need to understand is that the scribes and the Pharisees they were the religious experts of the day. You see, the scribes were the ones who would copy down everything that was written in the law on the scrolls. And the Pharisees, they were known as one of the strictest of Jewish groups. Having positioned her prominently for everybody to see, they began to fire questions at Jesus. They said, Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses commands that she should be stoned. But what do you say about her? I can only imagine how she must have felt. I mean, she probably barely had time to even grab a sheet while these guys pulled her into the public square. And right here, guess what they were trying to get Jesus to do? They wanted him to pick a side. C come on, Jesus, where are you gonna stand? Are you gonna stand with the scriptures? Are you gonna stand with the sinners? Which side are you on? And in that moment, Jesus is faced with the choice. Is he going to uphold what's sacred, or is he going to support the sinner? Is his loyalty to the law or to the lost? But Jesus did something that no one expected. Instead of standing, the next verse says, Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. He didn't make a comment. He didn't argue his point. We don't even know what he wrote, but we do know what he did. He stooped down and wrote in the dirt. I like to think of it like this. Jesus got his hands dirty. He got involved. And you know, it's worth pointing out that the scribes and the Pharisees weren't wrong. According to the law, she was deserving of death. But Jesus wasn't going to condemn her. Instead, he got involved. And I wonder if getting his hands dirty was even just a symbol that all of us have our hands dirty with the stain of sin. See, I think that's a good principle for us to remember. A lot of people want to make comments before they've ever made a commitment to get involved. 
They want to take a stance before they've ever stooped. And as a Christ follower, we have to do better. One day, we've got to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. But in Christ, that is neither Jew nor Gentile. In Christ, that is neither male nor female. In Christ, that is neither communist nor capitalist. In Christ, somehow, that is neither bond nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And when we truly believe in the sacredness of human personality, we won't exploit people. We won't trample over people with iron feet of oppression. We won't kill anybody. There are three words for love in the Greek New Testament. One is the word eros. Eros is a sort of aesthetic, romantic love. Plato used to talk about it a great deal in his dialogues, the yearning of the soul for the realm of the divine. And there is and can always be something beautiful about Eros, even in its expressions of romance. Some of the most beautiful love in all of the world has been expressed this way. And then the Greek language talks about phileo, which is another word for love. And phileo is a kind of intimate love between personal friends. This is the kind of love that you have for those people that you get along with well and those that you like on this level. You love because you are loved. You love those people that appeal to you and those that you like. Then the Greek language comes out with another word for love. It is a word agape. Agape is more than romantic love. It is more than friendship. Agape is understanding, creative, redemptive, goodwill for all men. Agape is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. Theologians would say that it is the love of God operating in the human heart. And so when you rise to love, on this level, you love all men, not because you like them, not because their ways appeal to you, but you love every man because God loves him. This is what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. And I'm happy that he didn't say like your enemies because there are some people that I find it pretty difficult to like. Like is an affectionate emotion and I can't like anybody bombing my home. I can't like anybody who would exploit me. I can't like anybody who would trample over me with injustices. I can't like them. I can't like anybody who threatens to kill me day in and day out. Jesus reminds us that love is greater than like. Love is understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill. All men. The accusations hurled at Jesus weren't unique to him. We live in a day where lines are drawn and people are picking sides all the time. 
seems like everyone has an opinion on right and wrong. And so it's so easy to get swept up in the comments and the sound bites that we almost never sit down and engage in a conversation. But to be a Christ follower is to model our life after the life of Jesus. One of my favorite examples of how Jesus engaged with conflict is recorded in John chapter four. The scripture begins by saying that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now he didn't have to go through Samaria because there was no other route, but he went through because he had a reason. See, he could have gone around Samaria and every other Jew would have because Samaria was a place of great cultural conflict. Jews didn't like Samaritans and actually they hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated them. You have to understand that they didn't believe the same thing. The Samaritans had once desecrated the Jewish people's place of worship and the Samaritans considered themselves the true people of God. On the other side, the Jews considered the Samaritans a sort of religious half-breed. And there was this constant argument and hostility and hatred on both sides. That's Samaria. All this conflict and Jesus walks straight into it. Now, if you're familiar with the story, once Jesus gets there, he sits down by a well and sends his disciples to go get some food. And just as he sits down, a Samaritan woman makes her way to the well. I want to pick up the story in verse seven. It says, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, this is a really interesting question to me because Jesus doesn't have to ask her a question because he's thirsty. Instead, he's doing something very intentional. He's engaging her in conversation. And this isn't just any ordinary question either. You have to understand Jesus is a rabbi and he's asking a question of a woman. Now that might not seem like a big deal to you, but in this culture, rabbis weren't supposed to speak to women. Not only that, but as we're about to find out in this encounter, this was a woman of questionable conduct. She not only had questionable behavioral conduct, but a completely different belief system than Jesus, a different theology, a different moral code, and a different ethnicity. So why would Jesus sit down and start a conversation with her? I would tell you something that the church is not very good at is something that the Savior actually came to do, to start conversations with people who were different. We can't make peace if we don't first make a conversation. But a lot of us don't even do that. Instead, what we wanna do is make comments. The funny thing about this encounter is that once she realizes what's going on, she immediately turns this into a theological debate. In verse 20, she says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem, which is right. Tell me, tell me, Jesus, where do you stand? And Jesus did answer her, but they could have never got to this point if he wouldn't have first sat down and had a conversation. I wanna be really clear with you. As Christians, we do need to take a stand. There are standards. We need to stand for truth. We need to stand for justice. We need to stand for righteousness and integrity and morals. We should stand for those things. But I'm reminded of what Nelson Mandela once said. He said that where you stand depends 
on where you sit. See, your beliefs are shaped by your background. And sometimes we try to take a stance before we've ever sat down and had a conversation. We speak before we sit. I know sometimes for myself, it's way easier for me to focus on what I want to say rather than listening to the worldview of someone who's different. But I would challenge you this week that before you take a stand and pick a side, that you take a seat and pick up a conversation with someone who has a different view than you. So that's what I want to invite you to do today, to sit down and have a conversation. I believe it's in this model we see Jesus. It's his model that we discover the pattern for peace.